Today's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, which can be found in, in your Pew Bible on page 1156. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning from verse, th- verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Knox. Last week, uh, if you were here, we launched into a new sermon series in which we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. We're going to spend for the next couple of months uh, examining, walk, leisurely walking through this book, um, which is a, a compact but richly dense, beautiful book of scripture. And, and we encourage you last week, let's, let's do this as a community opportunity to listen, to attend to God's word together. And we encourage you to, to read through this week, to read through the whole book of Ephesians in one setting. I hope you had the opportunity to do that. Um, and if not, do it this week. Read through that whole book of Ephesians in one setting just to get a, a sense for the, the big sweep of, of the story of Ephesians. And last week we noted in Ephesians how, how really it, it gives us an alternative reading of reality. We're calling the sermon series a better story because e- Ephesians, its purpose is, is to wake us up to this better story in Jesus Christ, to open our eyes, to see life and the world through the lens of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It, it, it gives us a better story to, to make sense of our lives, to help understand our world because all human beings live from some story we all operate from some fundamental understanding of reality we convey truth 
um, through the form of story, how we understand the world. And the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us as the better story, not because, not because it's you know, comforting and it'll help us get by through tough times, but because it's true. Because, it, because of its explanatory power to make sense of the world, to make sense of all reality. We live in this postmodern world, and in this world, there is this mix of competing narratives, competing stories, and all these stories purport to tell us how reality is. It purports to tell us what this world is about, um, what's the purpose and meaning in life, what you, as a human person, how you fit in that big mix. And, and we are surrounded by these stories in our world. And we're shaped by them. And sometimes we begin to live by them. And when we do, they shape what we see and what we don't see. There's all sorts of them. There's the story of scientific materialism, which tells us that the grand world that we live in consists of physical and material forces, that there's no life beyond the physical plane of existence, and that meaning and purpose in life is found here. And, and that this universe, this physical universe is ended, along with meaning and purpose, ended in destruction when the world ends. There's a story of technological progress, which tells us that we, as a species, are constantly evolving, progressing, and that new technologies are moving us forward, and that our hope to the problems of human life are found in these technological innovations that will move us forward, that will provide relief. There's a story of modern capitalism and consumerism, that tells us that the good life, a meaningful life, is found in, in the goods that we can acquire and consume. And so all these desires we feel are satisfied as we fill our lives and consume goods with clothes and houses and money. There's a story of expressive individualism probably the dominant story in our culture today, which says that true meaning and true life is found within you, within yourself, the individual. You are the one who chooses and defines your own reality. You are the creator and sustainer of that reality. So find yourself. Be true to yourself. Those are some of the stories that are playing out in our world that we hear all the time in media, in conversations, in schools, in work. But what's been happening in our society is all these stories have been fragmenting and falling apart. They've been shown to, to be untrustworthy stories, leaving uncertainty, leaving a vacuum of meaning at the heart of us because they can't hold us together. They can't hold us together as a society. And, and it's left us in the modern world with a massive identity crisis. We don't know who we are. Who am I is, is one of the biggest existential questions of our day and age. It's the heart cry of, of the, 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 the generation of today. It is this deep longing to understand, to know our place in the world. But we're not finding an answer to that question because the stories that we need to tell it have fallen apart. And so we're left with this identity crisis. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that this identity crisis is this acute sense of disorientation in which people express it in terms of not knowing who they are. 
We, when we lose a meaningful sense of how life works, this story, we lose our identity. And when identity collapses, we experience this uncertainty. We, we can't find a meaning that fits life together. This is our world. This is, this, for many of you, this is your life. You don't know where you've come from. And when you don't know where you've come from, it's very hard to determine where you're going. For us to have a sense of direction or purpose or meaning, we, we need to have a settled identity. Because identity generates purpose and meaning and direction. And without a story to guide our lives, what we end up doing, and this is just pervasive in our modern world, we end up inventing and constructing identities. That's one of the core realities of our culture is, is this insistence on identity creation, self-invention. I am what I choose to be. And so we design an identity, we curate an identity, and then we publish it on social media, right? We curate these identities on social media, showing us what the right people are on the right holidays, just hitting the right spots, looking just right. Because in the absence of a larger story to give us meaning, we need to find some identity, so we invent ourselves. And so we're endlessly striving to try to figure out, who am I? Who are you? Some people say, I am what I buy. I am what I wear. I am what I drive. Who are you? I am what I feel, what I desire, what I choose. Who are you? I am, I am my billable rate. I am my last deal. I am my job. I am what I do. That's probably one of the biggest constructed realities in a place like Toronto, where work is the most significant factor that shapes who we are. It's interesting. Careers have been offered to us as life identities, giving us a sense of purpose and meaning. But this is why so many students, when you come to the end of your studies, you feel a whole lot of weight and anxiety or as you begin a new job or a career, because you've been told your career is your identity. This is who you are. But you feel like, what if, what if I choose the wrong career path? My life is wrecked. I don't even know who I am then. And there's this massive weight and anxiety. That's the nature of our world filled with anxiety and confusion. Here's a test for your identity. How resilient is it? If you face loss or suffering? How resilient is your identity? When we invent our own identities, if something gets in the way, it feels like we're falling apart. If, if, what happens if you lose a job? What happens if you retire and you constructed your identity around your job? What happens if you head down a career path and that's who you are, but you don't get that job that you were hoping for and you have to settle for a job way less than you hope for? What happens to who you are? What happens if you don't get that graduate fellowship or you lose that promotion or scholarship? What happens if you lose that deal or client, if you lose your looks or your body? We experience all these losses as an attack and our identity feels so fragile. It's like we're a society of walking China dolls that our identity gets quickly shattered. But there's a better story. There's a better story to life. The good news is 
for Christians, that we are located in a story with a past and a present and a future. And at a time when all these identities are coming apart and fragmenting, the Christian story invites us to find ourselves in this story, to find our solid selves, to find durable sense of meaning. And here's the, the central beautiful truth that this passage from Ephesians at the, is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And it is this, being always precedes doing. Sounds really philosophical, but we'll get to it. But being always precedes doing it. Who we are at the core, being always comes first and it informs and shapes what we do. That is the big shape, the story arc of Ephesians, where in the first half is this declaration of what God has done, is doing, and how that defines us. And the last half then tells us how are we part of this story that God is doing? What are we to do? But being who we are always comes first. And here's how the Ephesians story tells it. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ Jesus. For eternity, there was God who is the source, who is the end of all things. There, from before all time and space, there was this community of all-encompassing, all-embracing love that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before light exploded into time, and before there was this expansion of light and gas that then cooled into matter, and before gravity took mass and shaped it into stars, and before supernovas seeded the galaxy with oxygen and hydrogen and carbon and nitrogen, and before organisms formed and grew and took shape, and before the, the created wonder, before time and space, there was God. And God knew you. And God loved you. And God chose you. Before you were ever born, before you were even a glimmer in your parents' eyes, you were already known. Before you achieved anything, before you acquired anything, before all your successes, before all your failures, you were conceived and known in love in the heart of God before time. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. And so begins the better story that we have been included in. Paul, in the beginning of Ephesians, he's so overwhelmed at this better story, so caught up in the wonder and the awe of this that, that he's, it's like he's beside himself. He, he cannot help trying to find words to describe this wonder. In verse 3 through verse 14, in our English translation, it's a number of different uh, sentences. In, in the original Greek, it's, it's all one sentence. It's this long, cascading sentence of awe and wonder. And I think he captures the appropriate mood um, to approach this letter, this story of God, one of praise and wonder. Don't read it for technical details, for theological argumentation. Read it like Paul is writing it. Get caught up in, in this sense of awe and wonder. And what Paul is just absolutely beside himself about is what God has done. Verse 4. 
He chose us in him. Five words. Five words that have the power to reorient your life, your identity, to give you purpose and hope. He chose us in him. Three connected pronouns. He, God, chose us, humans, in him, Jesus Christ. God has put us and Jesus Christ together, but he did this before time, before space, before the creation of the world. God's purpose, his plan concerned Jesus Christ, his only son, and us, his adopted sons and daughters. God determined to make us, who didn't yet exist, part of his family, his children, through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which hadn't yet happened. It gets your mind spinning, doesn't it? I hope it gets your heart bursting too. Because here's the beautiful truth. Who you are has long been settled and established. Your and my fundamental dignity as human persons is rooted not in what we do. It's not dependent on how we buy, not determined on what we achieve or what we feel. It is rooted, firmly established in something prior, in what God has declared, his will, his purpose, his heart of love. The gospel tells us the good news that we do not have to strive to prove ourselves, to acquire ourselves, to invent yourself. All you have to do is receive in gratitude and peace what has already been established. Ephesians tells us that the universe begins with a decision, a plan of God. God, the Bible tells us that God chooses. God whispers from beyond time and he says, I wish you to be mine. Who are you? You're chosen. You're chosen. God makes a choice. What we're talking about here is, is what some theologians call uh, a doctrine of election. And there's a lot of confusion uh, around that term. Election is probably one of the least understood and therefore one of the least loved teachings of the Bible. Um, some people will reject it out of hand and just say it's not in the Bible, but it's very apparent. Here it is. You can't avoid it. And I don't know if you'd want to avoid it. It's so beautiful. When we think of election, we, we bring modern terms to it. When we think of election, often what, what comes to mind? Election day. We're voting for prime ministers or mayors or members of parliaments. And how do we make those choices? We make those choices based on merit, on competency, right? We want the best prime minister or mayor. We think of someone who has a good record, who has skills to bring to bear, who's worthy to lead. So election in our modern minds is, is a choice made on best value, on performance, on personal merits. It's not just elections where this happens. I mean, growing up as a kid, you know where this happens. On schoolyard sports teams, right? Where, all right, let's play baseball or let's play hockey. Everyone line up. We're going to pick teams. If you've been picked first, it feels good, doesn't it? You've been picked because you've been named and noted. You've got skills. I want you on my team. If you picked last, oh, it's like you're sort of settled. Oh, okay. I'll take you. We pick based on, on value, on, on merits, on performance, on record. The biblical teaching around election is very different because God's choice, remember, happens before we did anything, before we even existed. 
before we are able to even prove how good we are or prove how unworthy we are, God made a choice. And that choice, Ephesians says, is rooted in love. In love, he predestined us. It's not how good we are. It's not how spiritual we are. It's not how obedient we are. The fact that you and I, as a Christian, can be explained only because of God, his character, his plan, his action to choose, not on some quality within us that makes us so eminently choosable. Think about it. To be chosen is to be seen as as unique. To be chosen means that someone has seen you, has known you, has spotted you as unique and chosen you. To be chosen means somebody wants you. Someone has expressed a desire to be with you, to know you, to love you, to come close. When a couple gets married, essentially, you know what they're doing at the front of a church and they're making vows is they're saying, you know, I could have chosen a number of different people. I choose you. I choose to give my life, to spend my life with you. To be chosen means I am desired means I belong. Someone has whispered in your ear, I wish you to be mine. To be chosen is to confer a sense of value. To be chosen tells us, by, to be chosen by God tells us that God who loves and seeks us out, he does so because we're precious to him. We're not disfigured rejects to God. The eyes have loved The eyes of love have looked beyond all that we feel might disfigure us and sees us as precious, as of eternal value. God whispers to us, I wish to make you my own. And to my lopsided soul, that feels like life, words of life. There's one more thing about this that we need to understand. It means, choice means I'm not in control. And I think this is where we struggle a lot with it, with this understanding of election. Because for many of us, it it offends our sense of self-determination. That gets violated. You mean I'm not in control? Because we're convinced we are controlled. Big story of many people live with is I am in control of my life. I make decisions. I make choices. I'll live with those decisions and choices. But in election, it says we're taken out of the driver's seat. And we said, no, 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 you know what? Actually, your measure of control, yeah, there's some of it, but there's a far bigger reality at work. It is the reality and force of love and grace. God is in control. And maybe that offends, but think about it. It's a good thing that your salvation, my salvation, is not up to us. Because if it were up to me, I would have blown it a long time ago, which I have. When my eternal salvation lies in the balance, I am so thankful that God is in control. This is the Christian faith that is not a self-help spirituality. It is a God-help spirituality. And of course, that gets us thinking, well, what role do I have here? I mean, there's got to be something I do, right? Um, God did create me with a free will, with a capacity to choose. Does his, his sovereign choice override that free will? And in a word, no. It's, it's not an either-or thing here that Paul is talking about. It is both. It is God's sovereign plan that is getting worked out, and it is our free will that he has gifted us with. Um, God does choose. That's biblical. We do participate. There's both and. And to be honest, what we're, we're dealing with here is a mystery. 
Honestly, nobody gets this thing fully. Um, it's too big for us to get into our minds. So many people want to make a very nice, neat, tidy theology about election. But remember, this is not what Paul's doing. Paul is just effusive. He's just trying to grasp words. and It is a hymn of praise. That is the proper mood and posture for understanding this. It is a prayer filled with wonder at what God in his eternal plan is doing and how he is thinking about you and has incorporated you. It has this, how could this ever be? Can you believe this quality to it? Paul's just lost in awe and wonder at what God is doing. That's the context in which we got to read and understand this. And we need to keep understanding that we're dealing with a huge mystery here. And mystery doesn't mean that this is not understandable or that it's, it's irrational. What a mystery means is that there's more of God there than we can take in. That's at core of what a mystery is. There's just more of God that we can fully take in. We're dealing with God's plan and purposes that he crafted and architected from before time. Our limited minds and beings just can't take that in. So this is humbling, which is a good thing when we realize we're dealing with a big, great God. And although it's too big for us to fully comprehend, we can know something sure about this. We can know that if you're a Christian, you are chosen by God. Since before time, God has been calling out to you, been drawing you, whispering to you, you are my dearly loved child. If you get that, that's enough. This passage is all about restoring a, a critical sense of who we are, our identity. It gives us our identity. You are a dearly loved, chosen child of God. Before you were ever born, you were loved in God's heart. This is the deepest secret to you who you are. And it can't be earned. It can't be won. It, it is just received gratefully. And it is solid. It is enduring. In contrast to the, the fragile, fluid identities that people try to construct, this is enduring. Because nothing you do will ever make God love you more than he does right now. No greater achievement, no greater beauty, no wider recognition, not even greater levels of spirituality or obedience. And nothing you have ever done will make God love you less. Not any sin, not any failure, not any guilt or regret. You, who you are, you are and always have been and always will be God's dearly loved child. Henry Nouwen, the Catholic writer, when he was thinking about God's choice, wrote this, from all eternity, long before you were born and became a part of history, you existed in God's heart. Long before your parents admired you or your friends acknowledged your gifts or your teachers or colleagues or employers encouraged you, you were already chosen. The eyes of love had seen you as precious, as of infinite beauty, as of eternal value. You are the dearly loved child of God. That was who you were long before you were born. That is who you will be long after you die. And it is who you are right now. And sometimes, when we stop all our busyness and all our striving and all our work, when we quiet ourselves and listen 
We can hear that voice from eternity speaking those good words to us. You are chosen. And when we get that, when that sinks into our heart, that's enough. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of quiet. Simply allow the Holy Spirit to press further, deeper, this beautiful reality of our identity in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this beautiful gospel reality, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.